and I hope that um, many of you are able to attend that. Um, and with that, I would like to welcome um, Lisa Adams to introduce today's speaker. Lisa is an associate professor of medicine um, in the section of, of infectious disease and international health um, and the associate dean for global health at Dartmouth. Thank you, Kelly. Um, good morning, everyone. It's my pleasure to welcome you all to a special Grand Rounds honoring World TB Day, which falls every year on March 24th. And like other designated public uh, health or health awareness days, World TB Day is designed to remind us that tuberculosis remains a significant global health challenge in much of the world. An estimated 10.4 million people developed TB last year. And as the cause of 1.8 million deaths, last year TB has overtaken HIV and earned the <clears throat> infamous recognition as the number one cause of death due to an infectious disease. On World TB Day, we commemorate Dr. Robert Koch, who on this day in 1882 in Berlin, astounded the scientific community by announcing that he had discovered the cause of tuberculosis, the TB bacilli. At that time, TB was raging throughout Europe and the Americas, causing the death of one out of every seven people. Robert Koch's discovery opened the, the way for us to, uh, and our ability to diagnose and cure TB. Now let's fast forward to 2016, as the World Health Organization and Stop TB Partnership launched their latest uh, uh, strategy to address TB, optimistically entitled the NTB Strategy. For the first time, we're moving from talking about the historical approaches that were about controlling TB to now eliminating TB. And to do this, we know we need to have an aggressive approach towards the diagnosis and treatment of latently infected individuals to ensure future generations are free from TB. So that brings us to today's presentation and speaker. Dr. Bob Horsberg is a formidable leader nationally and internationally in the area of TB control, well, now TB elimination. He's dedicated his career to understanding and preventing mycobacterial diseases, particularly drug-resistant TB and TB and HIV-infected individuals. Dr. Horsberg is a graduate of Princeton University and Case Western Reserve Medical School and later trained at Mass General Hospital and the University of Colorado Hospitals in Internal Medicine and Infectious Disease. He completed additional specialty training in tuberculosis at National Jewish Hospital in Denver, the renowned referral center for drug-resistant TB. He spent six years at the CDC in Atlanta, where he was the director of the Surveillance and Epidemiologic Investigations branch of the Division of TB Elimination. Later, he directed the Mycobacterial Clinical Center at Emory's Grady Memorial Hospital before moving to Boston University School of Public Health in 2000. There, he served as the chair of the epidemiology department for 15 years. Dr. Horsberg is an experienced TB clinician and investigator. His research is focused on TB epidemiology and clinical trials, and he has over 200 peer-reviewed publications, as well as several seminal review articles on the treatment of TB disease and infection, establishing himself as a true authority on these issues. He has served on numerous national leadership positions, including as chair of the Infectious Diseases Society of America's TB Committee, as chair of the Steering Committee for the U.S. Tuberculosis Trials Consortium, and chair of the U.S. Tuberculosis Epidemiologic Studies Consortium, and several others that I won't mention now, lest I take up all of his time to talk. I've had the good fortune of working with Bob for the last 15 years as a collaborator on our DARDAR programs in Tanzania as he has been or is a co-PI on several of our TB clinical trials and our NIH Fogarty Center HIV training grant. 
Since our first trip together to Tanzania back in 2003, I have been inspired by and learned much from Bob over the years, making him one of my TB heroes. So I could not imagine a more fitting speaker to pay tribute to the important achievements and the work that remains to be done to help us achieve TB elimination. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Bob Horsberg. organized. From beginning. All right. Well, thanks, uh, Lisa, for those kind words and for the invitation to come and talk about my favorite topic, um, TB. And on World TB Day, it is a particular pleasure uh, to be here. This is, I, I thought it was the poster, but apparently there's a whole series of posters for World TB Day. But this is the theme for World TB Day uh, this year. And Lisa asked me to really talk about what we as clinicians in the U.S. can do about TB because there's a lot happening all around the world and I would urge you to get involved uh, internationally with TB control efforts, but in fact there are things we can do right here at home, right in the clinic, and that's what I want to focus my, uh, my remarks on, uh, which is the title of my ta uh, talk, Testing and Treatment for Latent TB Infection, Now is the Time. And the reason I say now is the time is that there have been developments over the last uh, eight to 10 years that have really changed the way we approach latent TB and which give us new tools to do a much better job. And I think now it's time to sort of move it up the, uh, up the priority list. So I'll talk about um, why treat it, uh, how we can diagnose it best, how we can treat it best, uh, how we can identify the populations at highest risk, and then how we can, you know, it's all about quality improvement, how we can monitor what we're doing so that we actually can improve on our ability to treat, and treat latent TB and, and prevent TB disease. So this is uh, the schematic of how tuberculosis goes. If you get exposed to TB, if you're lucky, you don't get infected, but if you're unlucky, you get infected. And if you're infected, uh, you, can, you won't know you've been infected. There's nothing there. It isn't until uh, you go on to disease that you get sick and likely start coughing, and, and maybe after three to four or six or 12 months, somebody recognizes that this is not just a smoker's cough, it's really TB. So that's primary TB disease. But if you're, and only a small proportion of people who are infected with TB go on to disease, most of them stay in this state and we call it latent TB infection. It's not actually latent. Uh, someone suggested maybe we should call it labile. It's kind of percolating, but it is subclinical. So people can have this for a year, five years, 10 years, 30 years, uh, and then they may move on to what's called reactivation TB disease. And that's what we do when we identify someone with latent TB, we can treat them and prevent this kind of disease. And that's extremely important and becoming in, in our situation the most important way. So some people will go on and get primary disease, but an equal number will go on and get reactivation disease. And then it's possible also to get reinfected, although this in the U.S. is essentially never happens. You have to be in some place where there's a lot of TB. So for us, it's these two kinds of TB that we're worried about. Now, in the U.S., we have had a gradual and, and sustained decrease. You can see here, and this is 1982, we had a little blip here related to the HIV epidemic and homelessness. Uh, but we've had a gradual decrease in the number of TB cases. But what's happening is this is starting to flatten out. 
And the question is, why is it flattening out? So if we look at some data, these are studies of molecular, molecular clustering of M. tuberculosis from people with active disease in a number of communities. And when TB uh, is clustered, that means that it's molecular matches another person's TB case. And so that's likely that one person transmitted it to the next. So when you have TB cases that are clustered, it's a sign of recent transmission. Whereas if you have these cases that were latent and sat around for months or years or decades, uh, when, they occur, when they turn into disease, they'll be unique, and so they'll be unclustered. So what we see here is that back in New York City, about 30% in 1992 in San Francisco, 30 to 40, 46% of our cases were clustered, meaning that nearly half of them were coming from active transmission. But since that time, we've done a very good job at getting TB under control, finding people, treating them right away, uh, and so making sure that there's less transmission. So now, in, in the USA, we're down to, in 2008, we were down to 21% clustered and down to 14% clustered. So really, we're, we're getting the active transmission of TB out of the way. It's just happening very rarely here. And what's happened is that here, 86% of our TB is now coming from reactivation. So in the United States, most of the TB we see is coming from reactivation of old infection and not from current spread. And in comparison, you can see places that have a very active TB epidemic have 72% of the cases are clustered. So most of their cases are coming from active spread. They're just passing it around the community. It's easy to get. There's a lot of it. But that's not the situation for us and for people here. We're worried about reactivation TB. Now, this shows, too, what happens to your TB epidemic. If we're, what we're doing is decreasing transmission. And so this, just look at this line here. This is all in the United States. This is the best we can do. If we, this is the current trajectory of TB. And if we were to get rid of transmission entirely, uh, it would go down a little bit. That's because we have all of our TB sitting from this huge reservoir of lately infected people, which uh, is where our TB is coming from. And so stopping transmission isn't going to get rid of TB. And it is quite different in the US born. We, we probably could get rid of TB just by uh, uh, treatment of, of contacts. But in the foreign born, we see that there's a lot of TB occurring, much more than in the US born. I suspect in uh, uh, New Hampshire, it's like it is in, in uh, Massachusetts, where 85 to 90% of our cases of TB are coming from people that were born abroad. And it's not that they're coming here with TB and we're missing it. It's they're coming here with latent TB. Uh, and so they, they're not sick. Uh, and they uh, will come here and stay here maybe for months or years. And then they will have reactivation. And that's when they come up with a case of TB. So if we want to prevent those cases, we have to figure out how to go out and find them. Uh, and and treat them so that we can prevent them from becoming TB cases in the future. So let's turn now to diagnosis, because if we have to find, if we're going to go out and look for latent tuberculosis, we, figure, we have to figure out how we're going to find it. And of course, the classic test, which 
Robert Kahak, you invented, is the tuberculin skin test. I suspect you've all had it. I don't, does your hospital screen people for TB? It may not, because it's probably a low incidence hospital. How many people have had a tuberculin skin test? Okay, well, when they, yeah, they were looking for latent TB. They, they, didn't think you were, they didn't think you had TB and you were coughing on people. They just said, we're looking for latent TB. And hospital employees often get screened for it because it actually benefits the hospital to know if there's been transmission of TB. So the tuberculosis skin test, which you've all had, so I won't spend a lot of time on it, uh, is, is easy to do and spin around for over 100 years, but it has some limitations. And the limitations are these. It's, uh, it's nonspecific so that you can get a false positive test if you've been infected with non-tuberculous mycobacteria. Uh, the BCG vaccine causes a, a test. Now, most of us U.S.-born people won't have had BCG vaccine, but people who are born in other countries may have had BCG. And if they've had it within the last 10 years, it may actually interfere with the skin test. Uh, so uh, you'll get a false positive. You also can get uh, false negatives because it's, a, it's an immunologic test. And so people who have chronic renal disease or on TNF-alpha inhibitors or steroids, and they won't be able to have a positive skin test. And then there's what's called the booster effect, which is an increase in skin reactivity after an initial negative test due to immunologic recall. So you might have a false negative and then you have a booster. So it becomes a very difficult test to use and interpret. Nonetheless, it's the one that most of us are still using. Now, in the last decade, we have had the emergence of the IGRIS, and uh, you have IGRIS available to you here? Okay, so I'm not, uh, I'm not starting anything new, but the IGRIS are, are immunologic tests. They still require an intact immune system, but this one is done in the test tube, so you can actually stimulate specifically with TB antigens, so you don't have any interference with BCG or non-tuberculous mycobacteria. And so, of course, the IGRIS are particularly useful for people who are foreign-born, because you don't have to worry about uh, the BCG effect. And in fact, I've also found the patients understand it differently, because they were told that when they got BCG that they'd always have a positive test and didn't mean anything. But they were told that they'd have a positive IGRIS. So if they have a positive IGRIS, you can go back to them and say, okay, it's not due to your BCG. It's really because of the test is showing that you are sensitized to TB antigens, not BCG antigens. Uh, so this is a, it's a whole blood test. There are two different versions of the test, the quantiferon gold, and actually they're coming working on a new uh, test now, but the first one was approved in 2005, and the T-spot test approved in 2007. To my mind, the tests are virtually identical. It doesn't really make any difference which one you use. Uh, they're both pretty good, and uh, one is not better than the other. And you get an answer pretty quickly. The blood is incubated for overnight uh, with two specific antigens that are not in BCG or other non-tuberculous mycobacteria. Uh, and then it controls, and uh, you get a, uh, a ratio uh, that uh, either a ratio or a number uh, that's either the number of cells or the proportion of the cells that are releasing interferon gamma, and then you uh, get a readout, which tells you whether it's positive or negative. And it's a very good test for this purpose, and it doesn't involve bringing the patient back, which is another advantage, uh, whereas a skin test, you have to come back for a reading. Uh, for this test, you just get a laboratory report. And I think it really is a big advance. Uh, single patient visit, as I mentioned, it also doesn't cause the booster phenomenon, which is a big problem in foreign-born patients. Uh, it has less, it, there's no reader bias, so that you have some very experienced uh, TST uh, readers here in your audience, but uh, many places don't, 
And so uh, it's another thing you don't have to worry about. Um, and uh, the data on sensitivity and specificity, I'll show you in a minute. Uh, the disadvantages are it does have to be processed. You have to be somewhat near a laboratory that can do this, although there are a lot of laboratories now. And this, they can also be shipped. Uh, so uh, it's not, it's not, availability is not the problem that it was 10 years ago when we started. You do need laboratory quality control, but you need laboratory quality control for any laboratory test. But it is dependent on you having access to a good laboratory. Um, these are the data on sensitivity and specificity. Now, these are sensitivity and specificity for predicting whether someone is going to go on and get TB disease. So this is really what you want when you're testing people for the purpose of identifying and treating latent tuberculosis. Um, and the, the, the real thing that's important is the positive predictive value. And the TST is not particularly good uh, in the sense that Many people who have a positive test, have latent tuberculosis, may not go on to get tuberculosis. The, the numbers, it's only 5% overall. Uh, and the IGRA has the same issue. And that is that, you know, but it's better uh, than the TST at predicting the ability to go forward, but it's not great. So we do, we do look at this issue as one of treating a number of people in order to prevent a, a large number of people, to prevent a small number of TB cases. But TB is a very serious disease, leads to, if it doesn't, you know, if it's not recognized, it, it leads to death. But even if it's recognized and treated, it leads to a substantial amount of, of lung disease. And therefore, there is a, a, a value in preventing the, the TB cases. Now, uh, these are the, this is the prevalence of latent TB in the United States, and this is a, a, uh, done in the uh, national, the NHANES survey, which is a national, nationally representative survey uh, in the United States. And they, they did both TST and IGRA on a representative sample. And what they found, not surprisingly, is that among the US born, the numbers are very small. Only 1.5% of the people had a positive skin test, but 20% of the foreign-born had a positive skin test. And when you use the IGRA, uh, you find slightly lower number here in the foreign-born, uh, slightly higher number here, but these are not statistically different. And as that really gets back to my point, I think the tests are interchangeable, but I do think that the IGRA has an advantage, particularly in the foreign-born. Um, so, but overall, about 5% of the US population has a positive skin test, uh, evidence of latent uh, TB infection. The, um, the, about 80% of these people had had latent tuberculosis diagnosed previously, but only 44% had been prescribed treatment. Of those, most had completed. So we can see we have a gap here that latent TB is being diagnosed, but nobody's doing anything about it. And that doesn't make any sense. Why would you diagnose a condition if you weren't going to do anything about it, you wouldn't need to know about it. Well, you just tell the patient, well, you think about TB if you ever get sick. No, that doesn't really help. So, so we have to say, what, what are we going to do? We have a reservoir of 8.8 .8 million people in this country who could benefit from treatment. So how about the treatment? What do we have? Well, this has always been one of the stumbling blocks because what we've had for so many years is uh, 9 to 12 months of isoniazid, which is a very difficult regimen to take. But it comes from this study done in the 70s, which is the first study that looked at people with latent TB to say, well, could we do anything about that latent TB? And these people were treated either with placebo, with isoniazid for three months, six months, or 12 months. And what you found was that with six months, 
months or 12 months of isoniazid, you could reduce the number of people that went on to get tuberculosis disease by 75, you know, 60 to 75%. So this is a real benefit by treating people with isoniazid for six to 12 months. Unfortunately, six to 12 months of isoniazid is not an easy thing to take. Uh, in fact, we find that most of our patients don't complete it. I think in the US, the rates are about 47, 45 to 47%. So uh, more don't complete it than do. And if you don't complete it, you only take half of it, you don't get much benefit. So we really need to figure out a better way to do something. If we're going to go out and try and find latent TB, we better have better tools to treat it with. So this is a study that was done uh, by the Tuberculosis Trials Consortium. In, uh, it was about an eight-year study. It was published in 2011, and it's a complicated study. I want to talk about it because we have isoniazid, so we couldn't do a study at for another regimen to prevent latent TB and compare it to placebo because it wouldn't be ethical. So we had to compare it to isoniazid. So this is a trial of 8,000 people that were uh, at risk for they all had latent TB. They were all at risk for getting TB disease. And we treated half of them with isoniazid and half of them with a combination of uh, rifapentine and isoniazid once weekly for 12 weeks. So it was designed to be something that you could give once a week and you could actually have somebody like come to the office and get it once a week uh, so that you knew that they got it. And then the question was, was it as good as INH? And so... This is a non-inferiority diagram, and this line here is the equivalence. If they're equivalent, uh, then, then you would see the blue line, which is the actual results of the study, following that black line in the center. But in fact, what you see is it actually is going down this way. It actually favors the combination therapy. So we now have a new therapy that's better than INH. Uh, statistically, it's not exactly better. It's almost better, but it's certainly not worse. Uh, it's as good as or better uh, than INH, and it it's a 12-dose regimen. So it still takes three months, but not nine months, uh, because the comparator here was nine months of INH. So we have now a new regimen that we can use, uh, which has a couple of advantages, and it allows us to, to complete the treatment uh, in three months. Now, there are other regimens that we can also use. Um, this is the standard isoniazid. You can use rifampin alone for four months. And this is actually what I use in my clinic all the time. I haven't used isoniazid for years because it makes people sick and they forget to take it and it takes a long time. I get much better completion with just four months of rifampicin. Uh, and you can also, this is the uh, weekly regimen down here, isoniazid and rifapentine. Uh, and uh, I don't find the once weekly is so useful, but this regimen, isoniazid and rifampin, is, is used uh, it's particularly in England. It's the regimen of choice, and this is a daily regimen. It's only three months. So there are other options, and uh, all, of these rifamp all of these regimens with rifamycin, so rifapentine is quite similar, rifampin is just a little longer acting. These all work quite well, and probably, I think, better than INH, although I, I can only show you that it's equivalent. I think they're actually a little better. So they're shorter uh, and they're better. Now, there are some patients that you can't give uh, a rifampin to. Somebody's on birth control pills. It does not, it's going to cause them problems. Um, it also uh, can discolor contact lenses and a couple of other things. So there are things you need to worry about. But for most patients, uh, the rifamycins are good. Uh, Methadone, it interferes with methadone as well. So you have to sort of look at the patient. But I find that these uh, rifamycin-based regimens are much more user-friendly and m have better completion rates. 
These are some completion rates from a study we did, and they show that the completion rate with nine months of isoniazid is 45%, six months, 52%, four months of rifampin, 63%, three months of isoniazid and rifampin. So it's pretty clear the shorter the regimen, the, the, the more likely people are to complete it. And it's just no surprise. Uh, it's human nature, and I'm the same way. Uh, the longer you ask me to do something, the more chance I'm going to forget it. Uh, but these data are quite clear and, and really have pushed us towards trying to get even shorter regimens to prevent uh, reactivation of latent tuberculosis. Uh, so I want to show you a couple of clinical trials that are now ongoing that I think will may give us even shorter regimens. Uh, and this one is called the I-ADHERE trial. And this is actually the same three months of weekly isoniazid and rifapentine, P for pentine. Um, but here the issue is, let's see if we can patients take it on their own. We don't have to uh, have someone go and watch them. They don't have to come into the office once a week. It's still a once-weekly regimen. And they did it uh, by directly observed therapy, which is how it was originally studied, by self-administered therapy, and then self-administered therapy with electronic reminders. Uh, and this is a trial that was done by the uh, tuberculosis trials concerning. This one is, is completed, and I'm going to show you the results. It hasn't actually been published yet. Uh, these are the results. And again, because we have a standard arm, this is, this is the uh, non-inferiority uh, 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 non margin. And what you can see this is in the U.S., the self-administered is non-inferior to the uh, to the directly observed. Uh, the, it turned out that the electronic reminders didn't really make much difference. So the electronic reminders here and here, not much difference between those two. So we didn't get much bang from the electronic reminders, but we did find that people took it on their own uh, reasonably well. And uh, so I am expecting that the CDC is going to pull together a committee and spend a year or two and eventually come out with a, regimen, a recommendation endorsing this, but I would endorse it on the basis of these data. So if you have a patient that wants to take it themselves, you can give them the 12 doses and have them check in once a month and just make sure they're doing okay and not have to observe every dose. So we're getting to a little more user-friendly regimen than we've had in the past. This is another trial, which is a very, um, opt uh, a very um, uh, aggressive trial in which they're looking at one month of daily, now daily isoniazid and rifapentine. So instead of weekly, they're going to do it daily. But they're going to try to complete the whole course in one month and see if they can, uh, can uh, prevent the uh, the progression from latent to active disease. This trial is completely enrolled. Uh, it's been taking place in South Africa uh, among HIV-infected people uh, with a positive skin test, and we should have results sometime this year. I actually don't know if this is going to work. This is pretty short. It's ultra-short. If it does, though, it'll make it even easier for us to get this kind of treatment out to our patients. Um, there is a Another trial, which is looking at six weeks of rifapentine. So I think this one probably has more chance because we know three months works. Is six weeks going to work? I don't know. Six weeks of daily rifapentine, though, um, compared to the other rifamycin-based regimens. Uh, this trial is just beginning, so we're not going to have results for a while. Uh, but I think it also may give us a, a shortened regimen. And then just to... Uh, 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 talk about one thing that I haven't spent a lot of time, and that is 
drug-resistant TB. Obviously, if you have drug-resistant latent tuberculosis, you are not going to be able to give isoniazid or rifampin or rifapentine. None of them are going to work. So what can we do? There are three clinical trials, two of which have already been enrolled, which are looking at the household contacts of people with MDR-TB. So this will answer the question for us, what can we do to treat latent infection when it is caused by a drug-resistant organism? It's not an issue for us in the US, we don't see much of this, but it's seen around the world, it's a, a larger and larger problem, and we need to have ways of preventing uh, latent TB uh, when it's caused by a drug-resistant organism. So this trial, uh, these two trials here are going to look at a um, at uh, uh, levofloxacin uh, as a preventive regimen, and this one here, the Phoenix trial, is going to look at delaminid, a brand new uh, anti-TB drug which ha is, has a totally different mechanism of action. So none of the drug-resistant organisms, even those that are resistant quinolones. Uh, will, they will be susceptible to this drug. So uh, hopefully these two trials will allow us to have now regimens we can use to treat uh, latent TB caused by uh, drug-resistant organisms that are still susceptible to quinolones, and this one here should actually be a universal regimen that will allow us to treat latent TB with any uh, any TB because there's really no, no resistance to the laminid at this point in time uh, in the world. So I think globally these are important trials. They're not going to be, uh, we're not going to have results here for four to five years from these trials, but there, again, there's, there's really a continuing body of research going on out there that will give us new regimens and new options. And, you know, if you have a patient that doesn't tolerate rifamycin or isoniazid, this will give you some other options that you can treat the patient with. So who should we, how should we implement this process? If we're going to go out there and try to move forward uh, with identification and treatment of, of latent tuberculosis, I've now showed you we have some new tools for diagnosis, we have some better options for treatment, but where are we going to go? Well, um, there are uh, currently not many people being treated. The estimate, and only once was this even done, but under 200,000 persons were being treated each year. As I said, we have a reservoir of 8.8 million, so it's going to take a long time to get there, and of course, new people keep coming in. And uh, uh, of those, only 88,000 completed the treatment. So there's plenty of room for improvement. And if we want to decide who we should look at, this is the real critical uh, uh, a parameter. You look at the number you need to screen in order to prevent a single case of TB. And so you can actually look at specific populations and say, what's the number needed to screen in this population? And the smaller the number, the more important it is to target that population. So this shows how we do the number needed to screen for adult household contacts. We know already that household contacts of TB cases are at high risk for getting TB. So I'm just using this as an example. And what you see is that this is the number of household contacts. This is the number of them that are skin test positive, so they have latent TB. This is the number that accept treatment. This is the number that complete the treatment. I showed you it's only 45% with our current treatment. If the treatment works, the treatment is 90% effective. Uh, uh, we estimate 90. And so uh, they have a small risk of disease uh, if they've been treated. And so the number needed to screen is the 53,000 that we started with and uh, the 726 cases of TB prevented. Uh, so we have 73 
people need to be treated to prevent a case. So this is the number I said. So yes, we do need to treat a lot of people to prevent a case, but uh, this shows that this population has a particular rate, uh, number needed to screen, and we can compare that to other populations and say, okay, which populations do we want to focus on? So if we do that, we see, as I showed you, the close contacts have a number needed to screen of 73. HIV-infected people actually have a number needed to screen of 71, so they clearly are a population we want to focus on. And then you see that the foreign-born come in next. And the reason the foreign-born come in next is because there's lots of people who have it. So you go to a population where the prevalence is high, then the number needed to screen is low, because you find a lot of people, you treat a lot of people, you prevent a lot of disease. If you go to a population like uh, silicosis or diabetes, it turns out that there aren't that many people that are positive, so you have to screen a whole lot of people, and therefore your number needed to screen becomes quite large. So these populations down here are not populations that we tend to focus on, but these up here are the ones to really target our efforts. So HIV-infected people, close contacts, and foreign-borns, all foreign-born people, those who've recently come have a higher risk, but even these foreign-born people have a relatively high risk uh, and the homeless. And then you get these numbers start going up. Now the question is, where do you draw the line? You just focus on these two up here, or do you go farther down the list? And for that, we use cost-effectiveness analysis to talk about how much money do you have to spend in order to prevent a case, and is that worth it? So this is a study uh, that our group did of the public health impact of screening, and the the ICER, which is the uh, incremental cost-effectiveness ratio, is uh, it comes out in terms of the number of dollars. Now, I just have to tell you that it's usually felt that a, uh, a, an intervention that has a cost-effectiveness ratio of less than $100,000 uh, is cost-effective, and if it's even uh, if it's smaller than that, it's even more cost-effective. So what we find is uh, here you find that the the ICERs uh, of, uh, in, in people with chronic comorbidities, diabetes, these are not recommended because those, these numbers needed to screen translate directly into the cost and effectiveness so that the cost effectiveness goes uh, right along with this. And the question is, where is the $100,000 cutoff? And it's right about here. So it suggests to us that these are the populations that we should focus on and not these down here. And this is shown here. So the high-risk groups, the HIV-infected, the household contacts, the recent immigrants, the foreign-born adults, these are all groups which are cost-effective to screen and treat because we end up saving ourselves money and uh, quality of life uh, in, the, in the long run. And it's, it's felt to be worth the money that one spends on doing that. Now, you do have to spend the money, and this brings us to our next uh, development. This is an article that came out uh, last summer, and what it says is that the United States Preventive Services Task Force, which is a group, a, a body that evaluates potential interventions for general medical practice, looked at the data for identification and treatment of latent tuberculosis and came out with a recommendation that this should be part of primary care. That anytime you have patients who are at risk for 
uh, latent tuberculosis, they should be screened and treated. Uh, this has a couple of advantages. One is it builds it into the standard of practice. It says we should be looking for this. And the second thing it does is it says that the tests that you need to do should be covered by insurance. And most of the large insurers are moving to, if they haven't, and I can't tell you in your area, I know in Massachusetts, most of them have moved to cover IGRAs if you want to do them and cover the cost of treatment. It's considered to be a cost-effective treatment. So the, the good news is that this endorsement uh, has, says that it really is a, a cost-effective treatment and we should be implementing. The bad news is they said, well, we'll leave it to CDC to decide who you should focus on. And so I would say, and the CDC is, is actually working on this, that this is what CDC is going to tell you. They're going to look at these kind of data and they're going to say, you should focus on people who were born outside the United States in a high prevalence country, which is essentially any country outside the United States except for Western Europe and Australia and maybe Japan, I don't know. But really, uh, in other words, people who were born outside the United States because they lived outside the United States for a while had ample opportunity to get infected with tuberculosis. And we saw from our data that 20% of them are going to have a positive test. So you're not wasting your time when you're testing these people. You have a one in five chance of identifying someone who needs to have a, uh, a treatment to prevent them from getting tuberculosis later in life. So this is, was a real uh, a step, an important step forward. And this is, the CDC is now uh, actually Putting, out a, a putting together an advertising campaign, you'll probably be hearing more and more about this because it really is, it's one of those things that I don't know if you'll be monitored on it, but you could be because it's considered to be standard of care. You, you should be doing this, which means, of course, you have to ask your patients where were they born uh, and, and identify whether uh, they should be screened for latent tuberculosis. Uh, and the WHO also has come out with new recommendations. As part of the NTB strategy, they pulled together a, uh, a group, a panel of experts, and they reviewed the evidence, and they came out with two recommendations for latent tuberculosis treatment. The first is that HIV-infected persons should be treated. That wasn't new. They already had that recommendation. Uh, but they also said that in high- and middle-income countries, screening high-risk groups and treating those with a positive test for LTBI after including active disease, of course, was an important part of the global TB control strategy. So this is a way we, as clinicians in the U.S., can contribute to this every day in our office. We can help fight global TB by implementing this part of the global TB strategy. So that's, that's really my message for, for us today, for TB Day. Is the, uh, in addition, you can go abroad and you can work in uh, Lisa's projects or elsewhere and help control global TB, but you can do it right here at home by finding people who have latent TB and treating them. And this is, a, uh, this is a clip from the Boston Globe because the CDC has actually funded a demonstration project. This is the Lynn Community Health Center outside of Boston, which is a community health center that has a large population of foreign-born people from many, many countries. And the uh, Massachusetts Department of Health got a grant from CDC, and they're actually implementing the whole kit and caboodle, identifying you know everybody who comes here for primary care, gets asked where they're born, gets tested for LTBI, gets treated with one of the short three or four month regimens uh, to try to make this happen. And it goes along, there's a lot of community outreach, the advertising, because you have to, you have to let the community know that you're doing this, tell them why you're doing it, uh, point out the benefits of it, 
there's a lot of stigma around TB, and we want, we want that to go away. So this is a terrific community demonstration project. It's the only one in the country. But uh, I think it will also provide evidence that we can do this. Community health centers are a great place to uh, where the population that we want to reach is going. But anyone who has foreign-born people in their practice should be doing this. There's also outreach to foreign-born practitioners because many people, you know, the, the, the Indian Americans in our group, they go to Indian American physicians in our neighborhood. So that's the group we're reaching out to as well to try to spread this message. Okay, so I mentioned the other thing we want to do is are we doing a good job? And if you don't look at what you're doing, you'll never know whether you're doing a good job. So uh, we did actually a, um, a, a project with the National TB Controllers uh, to try to find out whether we could somehow capture the data to know whether people were being identified and treated uh, for latent tuberculosis. And uh, we called this the LTBI surveillance. What would the rationale be? Well, if we collected the test results, we could, we could not only know whether we had a burden of infection, we could find out what's happening in the community with regard to testing. So if people are using IGRAs and the laboratories are doing the test, and we could got some laboratory reporting, we could know how many tests were being done, how many people were being identified, so we'd know if the message was getting out to providers, are we really doing this? And then we could also track whether people are getting treated, because if you diagnose it but you don't treat it, or you treat it and the patient doesn't take the treatment or complete the treatment, we're still not going to make any progress towards our goal. So we think that this kind of a system could be helpful. <clears throat> now it turns out that some states already have reporting, either mandatory or voluntary, for, uh, for latent tuberculosis. And we actually did a survey of the TB controllers asking about, you know, what do they find out about latent TB test results, either skin tests or IGRAs. Uh, and uh, you know, what do they find out and what do they do with that information? Uh, were they interested in, in, in working together to have a national system? Uh, we got a very good response to our survey. 88% of the, of the programs responded, uh, which is essentially almost all of the states uh, and big city health departments and most of the, at least half of the territories. And what we found is there actually is already reporting of latent tuberculosis in many states. It's mandatory uh, in 28%. It's sort of a combination in 27%. And it's not mandatory, but being done in 43%. So every state is at least looking at this because they realize this is how they can track what's going on with tuberculosis in their state. Um, there was, a, there was some concern about whether the data were actually very good. Um, uh, it, they thought that the data quality was good and complete. Here, you know, this is just people's opinion, but obviously, because it was sort of a, a hodgepodge system, uh, it may not be the best data in the world. And the result uh, of this is that CDC is actually doing some pilot projects now to, to figure out is it possible to do this? We don't want to put a huge burden on the states. On the other hand, if we could track the number of people that are being tested, the number of people that are being treated, the number of people that are completing treatment, we could know if we're actually getting the job done. So it's part of quality improvement. And uh, the, uh, uh, these are the ways the data are used in the various states. And case management was the most important. Uh, but you know, monitoring treatment initiation, 
uh, and then resource planning. So, you know, there's a lot of things that a system like this could do. I, I'm not going to say we're going to be rolling it out anytime soon. Uh, it's a pilot project to see if it will work, but it's certainly possible, and this could help us know whether we're actually making uh, progress towards our goal with uh, identifying and treating latent tuberculosis as a way to really get TB to, to continue to disappear uh, from the U.S. Uh, so in conclusion, uh, you know, we, we know that latent tuberculosis is the source of the majority of the cases in the U.S., and we also know that the cases are sort of leveling out so that we're not really going to ever get TB to go away unless we can approach latent tuberculosis. Uh, screening and treatment could certainly, in theory, substantially reduce TB disease, but we've got to go out and find the people, and that's really the issue. And then we've got to get them to complete treatment. Screening with IGRAS is more cost-effective. I didn't show that data, but actually using IGRAS is more cost-effective than using skin tests, largely because uh, you don't have the loss of people not coming back for the skin test reading, and then you don't know what happened to them. But they, they actually are more cost-effective than the, than the skin test. Um, Screening and treatment should target the groups where, where it will be most efficient. The foreign-born, uh, the HIV-infected, some other immunosuppressed groups, uh, and household contacts are the groups that are where it is the most uh, effective. Most of the HIV-infected people are seen in, in HIV care centers where that's already occurring. Uh, household contacts is something that uh, usually the health department does, but we now have the new recommendation that the foreign-born really are a group that can be targeted in clinical practice. And that's uh, where the, the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force recommendation is, is moving us, and I think it will be the way we can get on top of this issue. Shorter treatment regimens already have increased adherence, and even shorter regimens hopefully will further increase uh, adherence. Uh, as you can see, we, we still were only at about 80% with our three-month regimens, so we can do better uh, and, and make our programs more effective, and these recommendations put screening and treatment into the mainstream of primary care practice. So that's, that's my message for, for World TB Day. Uh, think about TB. Think about it every day when you're seeing patients, and uh, make sure that you don't have someone who could benefit from this uh, slip through your fingers. Thank you. Thank you so much. Sure. Yeah. Of screening. If we set up more screening, uh, I, I remember working in a place with higher prevalence, seeing really cool x-rays of recently arrived foreign-born people and not knowing whether it was, you know, evidence of really active disease or just cool scarring or whatever. It, like, so how far do we, how much do we need to build that into these programs to make sure we're not treating as latent what is really active? Oh, yeah. You definitely don't want to treat uh, <clears throat> active disease. And the chest x-ray is the screening tool. So someone who has a positive test should have a chest x-ray. If the chest x-ray is questionable, then you really do have to sort of dig a little further. But 95% of the chest x-rays will be clear. If they have a chest x-ray that's compatible with old disease, it could be old heel disease, or it could be active disease, and you really have to get a culture and get them worked up for TB. Uh, but there, you're, you're, you have an even greater benefit for the patient. If they've got, uh, if they've got uh, uh, scars, then they're at actually higher risk of reactivating even than just the, having a positive uh, TB test. And of course, if they have active bacilli, then you need to treat them for disease, and you've really got a benefit for them. So it, it's a small fraction, but it does require further workup. 
uh, in general, though, in the message for primary care is you take a chest X-ray, it comes back normal, and you treat them for latent. But in the 5% or so that doesn't come back normal, yeah, you have to do something. But that's something that you probably needed to know about anyways. We don't do chest X-rays anymore in practice. It used to be you went and got your annual physical and they took a chest X-ray. Well, nobody does that anymore. But, so we, we, don't, we don't know that. But in people with a latent TB test that's positive, you need to do the chest X-ray. Yeah, there's a question. Practical question. We used to not treat patients over the age of 35 because of the concern for drug-induced liver injury. Where are things settled in terms of who you would not treat? Sure. Well, so... The, right. Um, so the issue with the 35-year cutoff, 35-year of age cutoff, was specifically related to isoniazid. Isoniazid toxicity goes up substantially with age. I don't recommend using isoniazid anymore. I would use a rifampin-based regimen, and it's not an issue. Um, and also, even the shorter, like the 12-week the, the regimen that has isoniazid in it, again, you have less chance of, you, of getting isoniazid toxicity because you're not using it for as long. So I don't, the, the, the age cutoff is, is not relevant. Where it is relevant is you know, the person's risk of getting TB depends on how old they are. So the older they are, with a positive test, the less risk that, you know, it's just a, it's how many years they are, are going to be alive. Uh, on the other hand, uh, there are substantial issues with the older population. If they get into a, if they get a cancer or some kind of immunosuppressive condition, then they're at very high risk. So it is a sort of a trade-off, and you have to look at the individual and say, well, this person is 80, maybe I'm not going to treat them, but this person is 50, They've got 27 years uh, on the average that they're going to live. Uh, that makes it worth it. So it, it, it is a trade-off. There are actually tables, and there's an online calculator where you can go and sort of say, what's your individual patient's risk? But someone who comes from a foreign country who's you know under the age of 50 or 55 can benefit from the treatment. As they get older, they have less time to benefit. So it's a, it's, it's, but it's not like a single-year cutoff. Are there, are there a monitoring protocol that you do? Um, if you use INH, um, some people monitor and some don't. Some will do an initial uh, LFT screen at baseline. If it's not abnormal, then they don't monitor them. I mean, you're basically looking for people that have underlying hepatitis or underlying alcoholic liver disease. Um, but for the rifamycins, you know, it doesn't make any sense. There's almost no liver toxicity. I mean, it's just not worth doing. Uh, so I don't monitor the people uh, that I put on rifampin alone. Um, if, if, if I'm concerned about them, I, I, get a, I get liver function tests. I don't do it routinely because I don't use isoniazid routinely. Uh, Ford, you had a comment? No. Yeah. Um, Bob, the modeling and number needed this screen was very interesting. Um, when you're going out and looking at uh, people who are healthy in the screening, it's one thing. but if you have patients who are going to be on a TNF-alpha inhibitor, it seems to me it's a little different, and you might not be using the NNS because this is somebody under treatment. Part of the treatment might be screening to make certain that they don't have latent disease that needs to be treated. So how does the task force, did the task force deal with that, and what's your view of it? The, so the task force, again, as I said, they sort of deferred to CDC. CDC's recommendation is if you're, if you're a rheumatologist and you are putting people on TNF inhibitors or high-dose steroids if you're, if you're doing oncology, then those patients should be screened and treated. It's a different situation because you know that, they're, uh, that they actually 
are, are going to be immunosuppressed in, in the very near future. So that's really sort of outside of the number needed to screen. Because uh, in fact, in the United States, the people that we put on, on TNF-alpha inhibitors largely are born in the US. And it's much more likely that their latent TB test is a false positive. But we still put them on treatment because we want to cover our rear ends uh, from, a, from a medical legal point of view. And you, you don't want to have some. But really, it's, it would be foreign-born people who really have LTBI that would benefit more from treatment. So uh, I, the recommendation for, for TNF inhibitors and other sort of treatment like that is really guided by the specific protocols for that treatment and not by this number needed to screen uh, thing. Yes? Perhaps not for all of those in this audience, but um, probably some of my highest risk patients are adoptees from um, high risk countries, some of whom may have had BCG or not. In the initial screening, they get the chest x rays and, and, and in the screening. But they seem like they might still be high risk for um, false negatives with the first screen. Um, and what are the recommendations? There aren't any right. There, there aren't any recommendations along those lines. I think, from my point of view, the biggest risk in that population is malnutrition. And so, if if they come in and they really are malnourished, I would consider retesting them after they've had you know six months of a good diet and probably gained you know a substantial amount of body weight. Um, the, uh, all the tests have the risk of being false negative. The BCG is sort of not an issue if you're going to use the IGRA, but um, you know, any, anyone who has compromised immunity probably could benefit from a retest after their immunity. So if they have HIV infection, they get put on protease, and they get put on antiretroviral therapy, yes, I would retest them six months after that because the test may have been falsely negative. So you do have to worry about that. And, with the refugee population, I'd say malnutrition is probably the, the, the single largest uh, concern about a false negative test. Yeah? How do you prove after all these treatments from six, six weeks to three months that the patient involved is really cured? Is there a follow-up test, another icon? <laughs> that's a very good question. There is not a follow-up test. Um, there are some data that in some people the spiritual skin test or the IGRA may revert back to normal, but you can't use that uh, as, a, as, a, as a test of cure. And really, we don't have a way of saying that the treatment has worked. But we know from our clinical trials that if people have taken the medicine, they have a 90% chance of being cured. We don't know who the 10% are that didn't get cured, um, and we live with that. Uh, Maybe some of the new treatments will be better. I doubt it. But I don't think we, we have a, a test of cure uh, test. Yes? So I'm a huge fan of truth in advertising. Uh, the uh, slogan that we heard is NTV. Thinking about all this, this is all clearly going to help, but I don't think this is going to end TB, right? This is going to decrease TB, but we still have a Ford Reservoir. We got a lot of, I mean, there's going to be a lot of circulating disease. The cures aren't perfect, et cetera. Uh, ending TB really is going to involve a vaccine. That's in, in all the infectious disease, really good control of infectious disease around vaccine. Probably an entirely other uh, Grand Rounds talk, but in 30 seconds or less, where, <laughs> is, I mean, is there any hope for a TB vaccine in the, in, in the near future? There is. Could I have the second slide set, please? <laughs> uh, no, there is. And, and, uh, uh, it's actually a very exciting time. There are a number of 
uh, TB vaccine can't, so you, the answer is you're absolutely right. A vaccine is probably what's needed. The, uh, Mario Riviglione from WHO says just as much, and I even have a slide where he points and says, vaccine here. Uh, and that is what it's going to take in order to make the global epidemic go down. Um, and there are, a number of, there are a number of vaccines out there in clinical trials. There are two right now. Uh, we'll actually have answers uh, from them, and one of them, Dr. Von Ryan, is involved in, uh, to know whether vaccines can prevent infection. There's another two trials that are going to go on to see if vaccines can be used at the end of treatment to prevent relapse. So there is a lot of work going on, but, you know, I'm, uh, as a betting man, I'm not sure where I'd go. I mean, these are difficult things, but we do have, you do naturally get immunity to TB, so the body, there is protective immunity against TB, and therefore there should be a way to stimulate it with a vaccine. Uh, that is part of the, of the program, and there really are things going on. Uh, I don't have any results. And unfortunately, there was a big va TB vaccine trial about two years ago came out negative. So it doesn't mean you know, that it's going to work, but there are a lot of people working on it with very clever approaches, and hopefully one of them will do the trick. But yeah, I'll have to come back about five years and, and tell you what, what we've got. Yes, in the back. The non-inferiority margin of um, self-administered versus uh, directly prescribing for the weekly reflupantin and isolated seems a bit generous. Well, that's a good question. Um, how those how those uh, margins are picked is uh, is an art. Uh, it really, well, it, it, they're, done, they're done by clinicians who say, well, how much less would I be willing to tolerate in order to deal, because of course, self-administered is much less expensive, and so the question is, would I put up with a slightly less good, uh, uh, you know, completion rate, uh, so that I could just give it self-administered, um, and but the other thing that generates the, the non-inferiority margin is the sample size. So, you know, they could have done a much bigger study and shrunk the confidence intervals, and then it would have been less than. So they, that, that was all taken into account when they put up that non-inferiority margin. I'll show you this slide. But the, the thing has, that has to happen is that not only does the point estimate for the difference have to be within the margin, but so do the confidence intervals around the point estimate of the difference, and so a bigger study can shirk those, and that's got, that doesn't tell you much. So when you pick that margin, you do it based on the sample size and on the fact that you're willing to accept a little bit less good outcome for uh, some other benefit like saving money. So the answer is non-inferiority margins is several talks, and they are they are generated, you know, a priori by clinical judgment. And yes, it was big, but they wanted to do a study of a certain size, and they said, well, what do think we can? What do you think we can do? And what would we say was okay? And a bunch of people got together and picked that. Um, you can always say afterwards that you wished it had been different, but. But are you using are you using uh, self-administered weekly therapy? Um, I, no one is yet, because that study hasn't been published. And so once it gets published, then CDC will bring together a panel of experts and they'll put together a recommendation. I strongly suspect they will come out in favor, but I don't know. And there'll be some debate about whether the study was big enough. And uh, it's very interesting because I didn't dwell on it, but the study was done outside the US as well as in the US. And in South Africa, they had a terrible result with self-administered therapy. And it has a lot to do with the traditions of the South African program. And, you know, people don't take their medicines there. And so they didn't, you know, it may be dependent on the patients as well as 
you know, is not for everybody. So uh, they may come out with a recommendation saying if you have a reasonably reliable patient, then let them do this. Uh, you know, I don't know where they're going to go with it, but uh, it's, uh, you know, predictions about the future are difficult. So I think we are at the end of the hour. Sorry, I'm happy to take more questions. No, 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 I'm apologizing. Oh, clock right? This clock's not Okay. <laughs> so, um, and I think folks need to get to the clinics, but thank you so much. Sure. Excellent talk. Great. Okay.